Welcome to another episode of Harvest Series, a podcast following a four-day experience in Kaplankaya on the southwestern Asian coast of Turkey, filled with fascinating talks and workshops to harvest knowledge and nurture the planet, an event produced by Athena Advisors and Capital Partners. Kids who are abused, they tend to choose to abuse the relationship because that's what they think is normal. Or because, for example, if you had an abusive parent, whose love did you most want? Is that parent's love? Therefore, as an adult, when you sense in some potential partner the same kind of energy, you're going to be drawn to it like a magnet. That's where you're going to look for love. It doesn't make logical sense, but it makes perfect emotional sense. So now, unless you understand what happened to you, you just think you're stupid. Why am I choosing these bad relationships? But if you realize that actually there's nothing stupid about you, it's just a, a function of the repression. I'm Rose, a French journalist based in Barcelona. Today, I have the privilege of hosting Dr. Gabor Maté, a Hungarian-born physician based in Canada. He's a prolific author renowned for his bestsellers like When the Body Says No and The Myth of Normal. In our previous episodes, We've explored topics such as healing traumas, authenticity, and addictions with Dr. Gabor Maté. However, today's focus revolves around compassionate inquiry. Harvest recently orchestrated an inspiring retreat in Kaplankaya centered around this theme, offering attendees a profound journey into self-discovery. The retreat's ambience was truly remarkable, and in the future, we might feature one of the participants to share her experience and the lasting impact on her life. For now, let's dive into an in-depth exploration of compassionate inquiry with Dr. Maté himself. First, could you explain me uh, what is compassionate inquiry? Well, it's a therapeutic approach that has arisen out of my work. We had to call it something, so we called it compassionate inquiry, but it's a pretty accurate description. It's based on the idea that the truth and the capacity to heal is inside everybody. It's, 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 it's innate, and if you ask the right questions, people, and the answers are inside everybody. So if you ask the right questions, people will find the answers within themselves, number one. And number two, it's a question of how you ask the questions. For example, if I said to you, why did you do that? What would your response be? It's not really a question, so I would yeah. probably tell you because because yeah. I want to. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you'd be defending yourself. Yeah. But if I said, "Hey, why do you think why do you think you did that?" So uh, it, it's the okay. attitude. With there's a great teacher called A. H. Almas who said that only when compassion is present will people allow themselves to see the truth. And so um, people need to feel safe. People feel safe in the presence of compassion. So compassion inquiry. Then it's also knowing which questions to ask. So what happened was that when I was a family doctor, I began to notice, as I've written about in several of my books, that who got sick and who didn't, then who developed mental illness or physical illness, it wasn't accidental. There was always some trauma there, some family, multi-generational family background. And so that in order to help people, whether it was rheumatoid arthritis or multiple sclerosis, of course, I provide the necessary medical treatments. But at the same time, Both of those conditions, for example, rheumatoid arthritis and multiple sclerosis, have been linked by research to trauma and stress in people's lives. 
although most doctors don't know that because they don't look at that research, but it's there, which means that to help people heal and function, it's not enough just to hand out medications. You also have to deal with the emotional side of their lives because the mind and the body can't be separated, but who to send people to. So while I was working in Vancouver, my patient population couldn't afford private therapists, and the medical plan doesn't pay for therapy. Yeah. Therefore, and I couldn't send them to psychiatrists because most psychiatrists are not trained in therapy. Yeah. They're trained to deal with the biology of the brain by means of medications, which can be helpful, but yeah. it's not therapy. And most of them don't learn anything about trauma, really. So then who do I send people to? I said, well, I, I have to start providing the counseling myself based on what I've learned about myself and read and so on. So anyway, to make a long story short, I began this counseling effort to help my patients. And then I began to lead retreats. Yeah. And people kept asking me to teach them my method because they seemed to like it. And I said, I don't have a method. I <laughs> didn't develop anything. I'm just doing what I'm doing anyway. Finally, they talked me into holding an event. I was hoping nobody would show up because <laughs> I didn't want to reveal my utter incompetence. But 300 therapists did show up. And uh, by that time, my name was well known enough because of my book. So 300, and, and it worked. You know, people actually learned stuff. So then... Colleagues of mine, specifically a Canadian naturopathic doctor called Sat Dharam Kaur, who is a yoga practitioner and a naturopathic, she and others took my teachings and developed a program which has become Compassionate Inquiry, which is now a method that we teach to therapists and doctors and so on around the world. We've had about 3,000 people in the last four years uh, in 80 countries studying it, and every year we have three streams in February, May, and September, about 250, 300 people each. We do this online, and people work with each other and with facilitators. And So on the one hand, Compassion Inquiry is an actual program to teach therapists. It's also a self. We also have a short course called Compassion Inquiry Short Course that people can just get online. That's not for therapists, for anybody. Okay. They just do it on their own. It's not participatory. It's not group work. It's just, you know... The basic principles, people seem to like that a lot. And then sometimes I do these retreats, like I'm doing here at, the, you know, Klapankaya, based on that method. Okay. And it's based also on a body and mind? Yeah. It's very much based on a body-based thing because, um, like you noticed today when I was working with people, I would often ask them, what's going on in your body right now? Because yeah. it, it all happens in the body. And, and there's a wonderful book on trauma by Bessel van der Kolk called, it was a psychiatrist, and it's called The Body Keeps the Score. So trauma isn't just a mental event, it's it, it, it's a mind-body event. So when you're dealing with healing, you have to look at the mind and the body together. But I notice also today that it's very difficult for people to notice what they feel in their body. Yeah. Uh, what does it tell us about society? Well, so one of the aspects of trauma is that it, it's painful. I mean, for a kid to not to be noticed or not, not to get the attention they need. But they, not the, not, I'm not talking about false attention. I'm talking about the actual attention that any child needs or the acceptance yeah. or the support. It's very painful. I mean, if you have a dog, the dog wants attention and doesn't like it and it doesn't get it. Mm -hmm. Imagine a child. You know, Never mind if you're hurting the child, if your child's being abused physically, sexually, emotionally, yeah. or if the parents are fighting a lot, or if the parents are drinking or parent dies or you know all this is very painful stuff 
And how people protect themselves from that pain is to disconnect from their bodies because they don't want to feel the pain. And that disconnection is the deep trauma, which now you can't, now you lose contact with yourself. You don't even know what you want or who you are. You don't know who you are, what you want, what you feel. Mm-hmm. So therefore, the any good therapeutic method and certainly compassion inquiries, far from the only one, is partly intended to get you back in touch with yourself and your body. What is the very start of a compassionate inquiry, the very first step you start with? You, you saw me do that today. It's to ask people what their intention is. Uh, why are you here in my office today? Yeah. Or why are you talking to me today? Or why are you at this really? Like, what's your intention? It has to begin with the person's intention. I noticed that for uh, some people, talking about trauma is um, quite a taboo still. Yeah. Uh, I know because last year you asked me what kind of parenting I had, and I said I had a fabulous one, of course. Yeah. And I saw also today that people, uh, when you ask this question, like the first thing they say is like um, a great one. Do you think it's because people lost connection or because they don't want to be to seem ungrateful? Yeah, I think there's a whole lot of things. One of them is people are afraid of being disloyal to their parents. Yeah. You know, and uh, that's the first thing. I'm not saying it's the first thing in the sense of importance, but, you know, arbitrarily, yeah. that's the first thing. The second thing is because people disconnected to protect themselves from the pain, they don't remember the pain. So they remember the To happy. survive, they disconnected. Yeah, yeah. The okay. disconnection was just a survival thing. It was too much to bear, so you disconnect. So people say, I had a happy childhood. They probably did have some happiness in their childhood. There's some joyful moments, you know, parents were in many ways good to them, but they don't remember the pain that they had. They don't remember the isolation that they experienced. They don't remember the helplessness that they felt because all oh, they repressed all that because it was too painful at the time. There was a very interesting study I could tell you about. They looked at uh, women in their 30s who'd experienced sexual, sexual assault in their teens. And this was known because the emergency room records were available and the assaults were documented. But half the people, but half the women, did not recall having been sexually really? assaulted. Yeah. And what's going on here? It's too painful. You repress the memory as a way of protecting yourself. Okay. And can't it be a good thing to um, repress this kind of uh, memories? Well, it, sometimes it's a necessary thing because it's only because, because you can't survive otherwise because you're so alone with it. Mm. So for compassionate inquiry, you wouldn't help someone to recover this memory? Yeah, but you do. You do have to. Because that repression of the memory may have a protective function, but it also cuts you off from yourself. It's, 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 it's one of the ways you disconnect from yourself. Then people, when the people come with the intention of, why am I in this abusive relationship? Kids who are abused, they tend to choose to abuse a relationship because that's what they think is normal. Or because, for example, if you had an abusive parent, whose love did you most want? Is that parents love. Therefore, as an adult, when you sense in some potential partner the same kind of energy, you're going to be drawn to it like a magnet. That's where you're going to look for love. It doesn't make logical sense, but it makes perfect emotional sense. So now, unless you understand what happened to you, you just think you're stupid. Why am I choosing these bad relationships? But if you realize that actually there's nothing stupid about you, it's just a, a function of the repression 
that was defensive in the first place. And if you recover the connection to yourself, you will never choose a bad relationship again. So, yeah, you do help people. No, when I say you help people, you don't force them to and you don't create situations where they, your intentions that they should recover anything. But the fact is that in any kind of decent therapy, it's going to happen, that people will get in touch with the isolated part of themselves. That's just what happens. Is there an average timing for a compassionate uh, inquiry? When I uh, take on my students, new students, I always tell them that your job is to get fired as soon as possible <laughs> <laughs> for the right reason. Yeah. You know, and the right reason is, is that the person is capable of being in touch with themselves in the present moment. So they don't need you anymore. But that depends on the individual. Some people carry a lot more burden than other people do. For them, it may take a longer time. Also, some people are just quicker to get things. So I don't think anybody should be in therapy forever. People who are are just not getting the right kind of therapy. But um, like these people that go to psychoanalysis ten, for 10 years, five days a week, that's total nonsense. Okay. It, it, they're only doing that because it's not working. If it was working, they wouldn't have to go that way. <laughs> But there isn't a specific time. In this retreat, when I'm working with people, I do it for 5, 10, 20 minutes. A real session would be about 50 minutes. It's about observing yourself with no judgment also. Yeah. I find it uh, very, um, very difficult. And uh, where does its tendency of judging ourselves come from? It's another protective device when you think about it. And I write about this in my yeah. book, The Myth of Normal. Now, if your parents are treating you badly or not giving you the attention or the love that you need, what is better for you to believe? What is safer for you to believe? What is more? Either that they're incompetent, they don't know how to love you, and, and you're totally alone, or that it's all your fault, yeah. and maybe if you work hard enough, you can fix it. Which belief can the child work, be more comfortable with, do you think? Does he have to change? Yeah, so that it's all my fault. Okay, is it, yeah. is it, it's Not actually a, enough, yeah. it's a defensive belief, is yeah. what it is, because at least then maybe I can do something. Yeah. Um, but the other part of it is that children are by nature narcissists. And by narcissists, I don't mean anything negative. Yeah. I just mean they think it's all about them. If the parents are unhappy, if the parents are happy, hey, I must be a really good person. But if the parents are not happy, guess whose fault it is? How do we practice not to judge ourselves? You can't, because okay. you're not judging yourself. You're not doing it. I mean, do you ever sit down deliberately and say, I'm going to judge myself now? <laughs> no. <laughs> it happens automatically, right? Yeah, yeah. So you, don't, so you can't practice not doing something that you're not doing. Okay, so what can you do not to judge yourself? <laughs> <laughs> you can notice it when it arises. Okay. And you can say, well, there it is again. And you can say, well, where did that come from? You know, so in other words, you can be compassionate towards yourself. Okay, so judge you yourself about judging yourself. Don't judge yourself. <laughs> don't judge yeah. yourself because you're not doing it. Your mind yeah. is doing it. Some program in your mind is doing it. So just keep noticing it. Not only notice the judgment, notice the impact on the judgment. Like when you judge yourself, what is the impact on you? You know, how do you feel in your body? How does it make you be behave? Yeah. You know, and the impacts are severe. So notice that you're judging yourself. Notice the impact. And maybe ask yourself, well, why do you think I'm doing this? And, but keep it, keep it up as a practice. You can even write it down. You can do a daily or weekly self-judgment 
schoolwork. Okay, where was I judging myself? Mm-hmm. What was the impact of the judgment? Yeah. Where did that judgment come from? Is divorce always a trauma for um, doesn't children? It doesn't have to be, but it often is. So if you do the in studies, divorce is one of the so-called adverse childhood experiences. Predispose people to mental illness or physical illness or, or, or addictions. It's it's in there, along okay. with other things. No, but what is it about a divorce? I mean, surely not the fact that the parents have decided calmly that this isn't working. It's, first of all, nobody gets divorced because they're happy. So divorce usually follows a period of misery. And the children pick up on that misery and they think it's their fault. Or they disconnect from it. They, they sort of isolate themselves. And the period of misery is worse than the actual separation or well, difficult to measure? The, 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 the misery is worse than the actual separation depending on the separation goes because that's the other part. Now there's divorces, then there are divorces. Yeah. There are divorces where the parents say, well, we don't want to be together anymore but we're going to respect each other as parents and we're going to make sure that for the kids the landing is as soft as possible. We're not going to running each other down and attacking each other in front of the kids. We're not going to invalidate the other person. We're going to be adults, mature adults, about how we uh, discuss access to the children. In those, in those cases, in other words, the formation of the family changes, but the family is still a family. You know, and even if new partners come into it, they're integrated into that family. In that case, the divorce can be a good thing because it's better than miserable people living miserably together and spreading their misery to their children if it can't be worked out. You know, so for me, it's divorce is always difficult because of the unhappiness that preceded it. But it doesn't have to be traumatic if it's handled right. Depending on cultures and uh, countries, have you noticed a difference um, of integration of compassionate inquiry? Do you have countries and cultures that uh, it's more difficult for them and some super easy for them? Yeah, I mean, some people are emotionally more advanced than others, and for them it's easier, I suppose. But in general, it's, it's hard for me to say this because the therapists that I teach And by the way, the first thing I teach them is not about how to work with people, but how to work with themselves. Every year out of semester, out of 250, 300 people, there might be one or two who just can't do it. So they have to quit and we give them their money back and say, thank you very much. In the therapeutic world, I'd have to say that no method is for everybody. This is not for everybody. I can't say how many it works. It works for most people. Some people, I suppose, it doesn't work for they need to find something else. And and same with other methods. There's no single method that anybody's ever developed that works for everybody. Once you've done compassionate inquiry, is it easy to stay with someone who refuses to grow or to heal? Because I noticed like, there is few couples in the retreat, but there are a lot of people with not their husband or wives. Yeah, the, the, uh, it's, uh, it's a broader question. If in a relationship, if, we, if what I understand you're right, If in a relationship one partner grows and develops and heals and the other one doesn't, can you stay together? Probably not. Yeah. Because um, it becomes intolerable. 
you know, first of all, the other person is too threatened. And on the other hand, the person who's doing the growing and developing just is not going to be satisfied. You know, so in a relationship, people have to go together or they'll go apart. It's just how it is. What are the good questions to ask yourself? What am I feeling at the present moment? Can I feel my body? What's in my heart? What's in my belly? What's in my chest? What's in my throat? What's in my head? What's in my limbs? That's a good question to ask. We've talked about self-judgment. How am I noticing that I'm judging myself? And what is the impact of that? Where in my life do I have difficulty being myself? Or am I not being authentic? If I, if I, where, have, where do I have trouble saying no? When I, when I don't, you know, like... <laughs> Let's say somebody asks you to do an interview for a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> you don't want to. And you don't want to and you say yes anyway, <laughs> then you can ask yourself, you know, well, why did I do that? You know, lots of questions. What's your um, routine or what's your secret to be present to yourself? Uh, to be present to yourself? Yes, you, Gabor, because uh, I see, we know like everybody wants to touch you, ask you questions, and how do you stay centered, and how do you preserve yourself? Well, um, I'm a lot better than I used to be. For example, notice there's a, I have a bunch of helpers here. Three. I'm not, I'm not right. doing, I'm, I have three very competent helpers yeah. who've studied compassion inquiry, and they've done a lot of work on themselves. So this it's not all on me. So outside of the sessions that I lead, they're doing most of the work. There's somebody who leads us in body work, so it's not all on me. You know, there's people who lead meditation and yoga sessions. Okay. So, number one. Number two, saying no. Like, if it's too much for me, I'll say no now. Like, you know, if somebody wants to talk to me, I'm, I'm just too tired. I'll say no. I'm sorry. Then, I don't know if you noticed, but when you guys were having lunch, I went for a swim. So, I make sure that I take care of my body. That way. And after the second session, I went for a swim again. So, for me, swimming is a great self-care. Right? So, you have to take care of yourself. Do you still want to judge people sometimes? Do I want to? Yes. Or do you... uh, the question is not do I want to, no, but yeah. Do, yeah. does judgment arise in me? Oh, yeah. sure, every day. Yeah. But the question is, do I believe it or I, am I curious about it? And, and so, yeah, my mind is like everybody else's. It'll make judgments. But I'm not so quick. I don't stay attached to the judgments very long, usually. I'm, I'm able to. And by the way, Any judgments you make of somebody else is always about you. So a judgment is not just an opinion about somebody. It's also an opinion with a strong emotional negative charge to it. And where does that negative charge come from? It comes from recognizing in somebody else something you don't like in yourself, but you haven't looked at. It's always like that. Which means that the judgments are very useful. Because when you notice the judgment, you can say, well, uh uh-huh, what about me here showing up? Okay, that's a good way to look at it. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, is there any last thing you want to add about compassionate inquiry? No, only that. The answer is yes. Um, the, um, the everything can be questioned, and usually, whatever thought or emotion or reaction or situation you're willing to question it compassionately, you'll find some answers. Thank you so much, Gabor Mate, for your precious time. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us in this episode exploring Dr. Gabor Maté's transformative method of compassionate inquiry, an approach that encourages healing through self-inquiry infused with kindness. If this episode resonated with you, we'd greatly appreciate your positive feedback and do follow us on Instagram at 
Harvest Series. Additionally, catch our podcast on youtube.com slash harvest series for more enriching content. Our next episode promises an insightful conversation with Dr. Mark Hyman. He'll be unraveling the secrets to longevity. Stay tuned and stay inspired until we meet again.